those individuals such as Barnabas and Silas, there was Priscilla and Aquila, who partnered the Apostle Paul on his missionary endeavors. But there are many more men and women listed in Paul's letters who assisted him in the work of the gospel. Some like Tychicus and Epaphrahaz, you'll find that they're mentioned in several places throughout the New Testament. Others are, are named just once. Some are unnamed. They're just referred to those in the Lord who belong to the family of so-and-so. God's little people, as Brian Edwards, the Christian author, calls them. Just ordinary people faithfully serving their extraordinary God. And down through the centuries, the cause of Christ has been carried forward by God's little people. And here we are, 2021, God's little people gathered here in Dundonald, seeking to be faithful to our Savior. But whether we are apost the apostles or whether it's the, the, the missionary mates that we've been looking at or those mentioned in Scripture or just you and me, God's little people, there's one name that we all bear, no matter who we are. We bear the name of Christ, the name Christian. And it's that little word that I want to look at tonight from the scriptures. It might surprise you that that little word only appears three times in the New Testament. But I want to look this evening at each of those references to see what we can learn about what it means to bear the name of Jesus Christ today here in 2021. And the first reference that we're going to look at is found in the book of Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. And for the sake of context this evening, we're going to read down from verse 19. Acts 11 and reading at verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord." News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Verse 26, the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Here we have two words, two words that are synonymous, two words that describe the same people. The disciples were Christians, and the Christians were disciples. 
Now note the word disciple here. It's not referring to the 12 men specially chosen by Jesus, but rather all those who were seeking to follow and put into practice the teachings of Jesus Christ. Or to be more specific, all those who were born again of the Spirit of God. All those who through repentance and faith and trusting in the person and work of Jesus Christ, trusting in his atoning death on the cross as the payment for their sins. So the first truth we learn here is that a Christian is called to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now from our earlier reading in Luke 14, Jesus reminds those who would wish to become one of his disciples that it's not something that we should do lightly. There's a price to pay. Following Jesus is a costly business. And in those verses, Jesus sets down three conditions for those seeking to be his disciples. And we're going to just remind you of those now. Firstly, Jesus said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father or mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, cannot be my disciple. The word hate there here is a very strong word, but it means to love less. So in other words, whenever there is a conflict of interest between Jesus and family or Jesus and self, Jesus is to take the priority. Second condition Jesus speaks of here, he says, anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me, cannot be my disciple. If we went back a few chapters, Luke also repeats that condition, but there he adds the word daily. Anyone who does not carry his cross daily and follow me cannot be my disciple. As one commentator puts it, a man carrying a cross to the place of his execution has forfeited the control of his life. Paul sums up the sentiment that Jesus is homing in here on. When in Galatians 2 and verse 20, he writes, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but it's Christ living in me. Self-crucified. And the third condition that Jesus mentioned in those verses in Luke 14, he says, anyone who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. So here the true disciple is to renounce everything for the cause of Jesus, his comforts, plans, maybe his reputation, ambitions, possessions. And if we sum up what Jesus is saying through these three conditions, it's saying commitment of a disciple of Jesus must be total. It must be total. I don't know about you, but every time I read those verses in Luke 14, you tend to want to skip over them. Because when you start to think about them, they're probably some of the most challenging verses in Scripture. They ask an awful lot of questions, don't they, of us? And this evening, may God help us to respond to the challenge of what it means to be a true disciple of the Lord Jesus. But a second thing here in verse 26 that I want you to notice in Acts 11, and it's there that 
the Christians were, the word Christian was first used of the disciples at Antioch. Most commentators agree that the name Christian, when it was initially given, was like a, a nickname. It was a derogatory term. It was maybe a word of abuse that was thrown at the Christians. Roman historian Tacitus kind of bears this thinking out because when he was writing about the persecution of the emperor Nero, he referred to those who the populace or common people were calling Christian. So it was a term that the common people or the populace were giving to the Christians. You see, the believers here in Antioch were, were causing quite a stir, weren't they? We, we see that in verses 21 and verses 24. Because as they came into Antioch and as they began to minister God's word, it says there that great numbers were turning to the Lord. And their commitment to Jesus, to the terms of his discipleship, was beginning to set them apart from the other folk living in Antioch. Their beliefs, their behaviors gave them a distinct identity, different to all those around them, in sharp contrast to those around them. And thus, they were given a nickname, the nickname Christian. You see, the Lord expect, expects you and me, or his blood-bought people, to be different, doesn't he? To be distinctly different. After all, we're, we're traveling on a different road, aren't we? We're on a narrow road. We've got out of the broad road, we're on a narrow road. We're traveling in a different direction. We're, we're, we're moving in that direction that leads to life. We're moving away from that direction that leads to destruction. Vaughn Roberts has written a book called Distinctives. And in that, he lists some ways in which Christians are called to be different. He says there that we are to have an eternal perspective in a world that lives for the here and now. In Hebrews 13 and 14, the writer there says, Here we do not have an enduring city. We are looking for that city which is to come. We're called to serve others in a world that is self-centered and self-orientated. We're called to be content in a world that never has enough. We're called to be pure in a world that is obsessed with sex. We're called to a life governed by certainty in a world where everything is relative. Because we know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We know that God's word makes that great claim of itself, that it is true. We're called to be holy in a world that's no longer able to figure out the difference between right and wrong. And we're called as Christians to live a life that's controlled by the Holy Spirit and not the desires of the sinful nature. These are just some ways in which God calls you and me to be distinctly different from those around us. May he grant us the power of his spirit in these days to be distinctly different for him, enabling us to live up to his name. The Christian's calling, therefore, as we see it found in Acts 11 and verse 26, is to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus, but also to be distinctly different to those that we live amongst. Now, the second reference that I'm going to move to now is also to be found in the book of Acts. If you move on to chapter 26 in the book of Acts, 
And just to, to put this uh, passage of Scripture into context here, Paul here is a prisoner. He's been held at Caesarea for almost two years on a number of false charges that have been brought by the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem. He's been asked by Festus, the Roman governor, to address these charges before King Herod Agrippa II, Queen Bernice, and the leading officials of Caesarea. And he's doing this prior to him being dispatched to Rome to stand trial before Caesar. Because as a Roman citizen, that was Paul's request, that Caesar hear these charges. But as we we look at these verses, amazingly what we find here is that Paul, rather than using the opportunity to defend himself, he seizes the moment to proclaim the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. How does he do that? He gives his testimony. And we're going to take up the narrative in verse 19 of chapter 26. Here Paul's closing his address and he aims it specifically at Agrippa. Verse 19. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and to the Gentiles also. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I have had God's help to this very day, and so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Christ would suffer and, as the first to rise from the dead, would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice, because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. Here we see Paul's great obsession in verse 28, seeking to persuade men and women, no matter who they are, the very top echelons of society here, the Roman governor and the king Agrippa, seeking to persuade sinners to accept Jesus Christ. You see, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 and 14 that the love of Christ compelled him to proclaim the message. In another place, in 1 Corinthians 9 and 16, he says, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And we see the desire of his heart there in verse 29. He says, I want all those who are listening to me to have what I have. And that's not what we were thinking about on Wednesday when we were reading about Rico Tice. As a young boy, he came to faith in Christ and he went into school 
and he told them and witnessed to his schoolmates. Why? Because he wanted them to have what he had. And what had Paul? What did he want them to experience? He wanted them to experience God's amazing grace. He wanted them to experience the joy and the knowledge of sins forgiven, of peace with God, a peace that passes all understanding. He wanted them to experience the fellowship of the indwelling Holy Spirit, the authority of God's precious word, the glorious hope of eternal life. I wonder, is that our experience? Do we long for others to experience what we have? Is knowing Christ and the love that Christ has shed on us, and we were thinking about that this morning, how Christ's love, his sacrificial love, satisfies God's justice. Is knowing that love, is it compelling us to share the good news of the gospel? We were challenged on Wednesday evening, weren't we? And it is a challenge. Because as Christians, we have received the Lord's commission to go and to make disciples of all nations. And we may not be called to go to faraway places. But what about those around us? Our friends, our family, our work colleagues, our neighbors? Many of them need Christ. Do we want them to have what we have? How are some of these people going to hear? Many of them never come near a church. How will they hear? Unless I tell them and unless you tell them. Bearing the name of Christ as Christians, we have a God-given mission to proclaim Christ to the lost. To the lost. But there is one further thing I want you to notice here in verse 29. What does Paul say there? He says, I pray God. I pray God, he says. Paul's praying for these Gentile unbelievers because Paul, despite the fact that he was mightily used of God wherever he went, he doesn't have the power to save because salvation is of the Lord. Only God saves. Only God, as he mentions in his testimony, can open blinded eyes and darkened hearts. Only God can turn men from the power of Satan to himself. Only God can forgive and cleanse from sin. And it wasn't only Gentile believers he was praying for. Romans 10 and verse 1 tells us that in relation to Jewish unbelievers, even those who were seeking to end his life, He says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Paul's great desire was to persuade men and women to trust in Christ. And that drove him to the place of prayer. Brothers and sisters, this evening, as Christians, we have been given a mission to proclaim Christ to the lost. And to pray to God for the lost. We may not come across, maybe due to circumstances, many unbelievers. But we have an opportunity every day, haven't we? To pray to God for those that we know are lost. And may God give us a, a burden. May he give me a burden for lost souls. And may that burden motivate 
each one of us to fulfill the mission that God gives every one of us who bear his name. Just before we move on to the third reference, perhaps there's someone here this evening or maybe listening to the recording, and you're like King Agrippa. You haven't been persuaded to accept God's great gift of salvation. Maybe you want more time. That was his excuse. But there are lots of excuses people use to put off accepting God's great gift. Be careful. Because time is something that we are not in control of. The writer in Proverbs tells us that we're not to boast about tomorrow because we we do not know what another day will bring. God's word tells us in 2 Corinthians 6 and 2, now is the day of God's favor. Here and now is the day of salvation. But let's move on to our final reference this evening, and that's found in in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4. Here Peter is writing to believers in the region of present-day Turkey. As they live as disciples of Jesus, they're finding that they are increasingly at odds with the godlessness of those around them. And they're beginning to be singled out for persecution. Let's read from verse 12, 1 Peter 4. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Peter here tells the disciples not to be surprised by the painful trials that they're experiencing in verse 12. Because suffering, he says, is to be expected. Suffering is part and parcel of the Christian life. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12, he says, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Peter tells us that it was the same for Jesus. If we turn back just a a page in your, your, your Bibles to 1 Peter 2 and verse 21, Peter says there, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow his, in his steps. Christ suffered for you, leaving you, that as an example. He was misunderstood, wasn't he? He was insulted. He was scoffed at. He was falsely accused. He was beaten. He was finally crucified. Peter himself was imprisoned, flogged. We read about that in the book of Acts. And tradition says that he would die a martyr's death. And across our world, 
our brothers and sisters in many countries tonight are really suffering because they bear the name of Christ. I don't mean to be alarmist tonight, but in our own land, as that once Christian ethos of our society is all but eroded away, so we as disciples of Jesus today are increasingly at odds with the godless culture that is around us, and things are moving at quite a rate. We've only got to go on to the websites of Christian Concern and Christian Institute to see the increasing number of Christians who are in difficulties, either with their employers or with the law. So suffering because of the name of Christ is to be expected. How then are we to react to suffering? None of us are running around there looking for it. It's not a something that we're supposed to go looking for. But Peter says, rejoice. Rejoice, he says, in verse 13. Praise God, he says, in verse 16. Is he serious? Is he serious? Look what he says in 14. He said, verse 14, he says, you're blessed. You're blessed if you're insulted because you bear Christ's name. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. It's a sign that the spirit of, of God's glory rests on you. He knows all about your suffering. He's with you and will be with you in your suffering. He may be even at work through your suffering. In the first chapter of uh, Peter's letter, he, he talks there uh, about your faith being refined through these trials so that you may be proved genuine. God might be at work through the suffering, refining, cleansing, purging away the dross. Look at verse 13. He says, here's another reason to rejoice. Rejoice at what's up ahead of you. What will follow your suffering, he says there in verse 13. He says, you will be overjoyed at the glory that will be revealed. And wasn't that the same for Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, what did he do? He endured the cross, scorning its shame. And what happened after that? He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, the very centerpiece of heaven's worship and adoration. For Jesus, glory followed his suffering. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 5 and verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you, he says, when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, he says, because great is your reward in heaven. And uh, in 1 Peter 4 there, we see even in verse 19, how we're, to, how we're also to respond in suffering. We're to commit ourselves to our faithful creator and continue to do good. We're not to lie low. We're not to give up. Rather, we're to continue on faithfully serving and faithfully witnessing for him. As Christians, we are to expect suffering. As Christians, we are to rejoice in suffering 
That's not easy, is it? It's very easy to say those words. But that's what the word of God tells us. Should we endure suffering? And that may not be for some of us that far away. Who knows? May we be faithful to the Lord. As we've looked at this little word Christian tonight, it's a very powerful word, isn't it? Because it reminds us of our calling. It reminds us of our mission. And it reminds us of the very real possibility that we will suffer for being and bearing the name of Christ. wonder how we will measure up to our calling. How will we fulfill our mission? How will we endure suffering? You see, it's a, it's a huge privilege to bear the name of Jesus. But it's, it's an awesome responsibility as we have been looking at tonight. If you're like me, you look at these verses and look at this little word and what it has been signifying to us tonight with some fear and trepidation. Because I look at my weaknesses. I can look back at many feelings. So where, where do we go? How do we fulfill our calling? How do we bear his name? Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. John 15 and 5. But then he says, or through his word, in Philippians 4 and 13, he said, we, we read these words, I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. That must be the prayer of our hearts tonight, that Christ's strength might be made perfect in our weaknesses. Let's make the words of our final and closing hymn this evening words of rededication as those who bear the name of Christ. Let's stand to sing Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Let's stand and sing to his glory. Sing it prayerfully this evening. We